You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to talk about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Mark. I'm Al. And I'm the Rev. (laughs) (laughs) We have a couple of ringers. Uh, (laughs) Lee, do you want to tell the world why we've got ringers? Uh, Ringers? Yes. (laughs) Do you know why we've got ringers? Don't ask me, for God's sake. You know I'll come out with. Um, (laughs) uh, No. Why have we got ringers? Go on, you tell us. Well, we've got ringers because Simon dropped out at the last minute and it looked like you might be about to as well. <laughs> well, he's got this part-time job as a taxi driver, haven't you, Lee? <laughs> well, I... <laughs> Shall I explain? I am sitting in my car outside my house at the moment because the broadband's really good out there. Um, OK, but... that's explanation enough. Yeah, we got, don't care about the rest of it. I've got pretzels and a cup of tea. And... Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Al, Al, Rev, Hello. Where, have you t- where have you two flown in from? Um, I've flown in from the Arctic Circle. And Rev? Um, Mondas. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, See, what I was hoping for place. then, what I was hoping for then was that you'd take that as all the excuse you needed to give a little plug to your own podcast. Oh, <laughs> oh sorry. Right. Um, um, <laughs> we've been, we've been on, in next week's, next week's secret pub location for our next podcast, which uh, I'll give you a spoiler. Is it's Lee's car. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the end of the pub crawl, I'll tell you that. It's our last mm. pub episode for the time being. And we're oh, no. Where we have unfinished business. It's mm. not that place from Battlefield, is it? Oh, mm. we've been there. Mm-hmm. Is it the Tardis oh, Tavern? We were there last week. Oh, okay. We're banned from there cause, um, <clears throat> because yeah, that Doc, Doc Who nicked the chalk off the black the dartboard and drew a magic circle and what that's back in. Apparently the veneer was quite valuable on the floor. So That's fair enough. Um, guys, we have got a lot to get through, uh-huh. including Knox Box. Oh, yeah. Does, mm. Mm, is everybody ready for this? Yeah. Yay. Okay, it's here we go. It's going to be like Bohemian Rhapsody, isn't it? It's going to be... Well, there's going to be unintentional harmonies, let's put it that way. pitched. <clears throat> okay, here we go. On three, two, one. Three, two... One. Nox box. <laughs> Jesus. It is weeks ten of Grant Knox. That's our man on the ground rewatching the Stephen Moffat era so that we don't have to. It's week ten of his rewatch of Stephen Moffat. And this week it gets to the end of series six. So here are his thoughts on closing time. He says so, another Love Conquers All story, and so soon after the last one. I think the story itself is quite weak, and it's full of overly sweet, predictable dialogue. I'm also not the biggest James Corden fan, and think he's quite poor here. But, and this is becoming a common thing, Matt Smith is absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. And on the subject of the Wedding of River song, he says, as I predicted he might last week, 
otherwise known as Let's Kill Hitler Part 2. <laughs> Not only similar in the absolute bonkers nature of the story, but also in the way I feel about it. It's just nonsense, really. Not even Matt Smith can save this one because he isn't allowed to perform because this is all about Moffat showing off. So, Series 6. Shame, really, it started so well. I don't think it's a patch on Series 5 overall. Highlights of the series are the two-part opener and The Doctor's Wife. The story that improved most second time around was A Good Man Goes to War. The only other episode I enjoyed was The God Complex. I don't have any desire to watch any of these other episodes except The Girl Who Waited because I know, hopefully, it's just a case of it clicking with me. It really does seem like Moffat's trying too hard to make his mark on the show, and because of the huge adulation shown towards him up to this series, I think his ego spirals out of control. Overall, disappointing. And that was Grant Knox's thoughts on Series 6. It's like a knife in your heart, JR. <laughs> it really is. Still, that's, you know, fair enough. We asked him for his opinions. We wanted him to be honest, mm. and he was honest, and he's sacked. I'm getting somebody else to do next week. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Next week we'll find out what he thinks about, well, uh, presumably the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, and Asylum of the Daleks, maybe, if he gets mm. to it. Okay, so is everybody ready to sing back out of Knoxbox? Oh, yeah. Indeed. This is going to be even more fun, isn't it? Okay. Three, two, one. Box Fabulous. We've got loads of emails. In fact, we've got one, two, three, five. Okay, we're going to have a... one out. We're going to have a very short one now, and then we'll have an email in between each of the stories we're going to talk about. Okay. So this is from Chris Forjak. He says, to answer Simon's question, seeing as Simon isn't here, <laughs> I often enjoy listening to the Blue Box podcast on my iPod while washing the dishes. This practice has transformed the most tedious chore into a minor highlight of my day. Nothing I've heard so far has tempt me, tempted me to throw a dish yet. <laughs> So there you go. I that try, should be I, our. I was going to say I try scrubbing the dishes to scrub away the memories of the podcast, but that doesn't work. Oh, uh, I suppose that's fair enough. That's the point where you put the uh, tumbleweed in, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I should say so. <laughs> um, we're doing season nine today, chaps, aren't we? Get in. And as usual, our listeners have voted the stories into the order of preference. Ooh. So, without further ado, well, okay, one slightly further ado, Grant Knock just quickly wrote and said, Hello, gents, this is my plea to you, mainly Mark, for the forthcoming Season 9 podcast. Pretty please, with sugar on top, be nice about Pertwee. I think he's been incredibly harsh. Um, I, I love Big Bird. In you love Big small, Bird, you never doses. have a nice word to say about him. <laughs> yeah. Coming soon from Starburst Productions, J.R. Southall, the musical. There's enough, actually. We've done 100 podcasts. We should be able to do a whole album mm. of J.R. singing now. Yeah, because well, Al's got his, um, his bagpipes. Oh, yeah. Not... <laughs> <laughs> what? <clears throat> <clears throat> okay, yeah. we did also... We did also have emails from a handful of people about the stories that we're covering tonight. So, uh, 
in order to save you all trying to guess which story came last. Do you want to guess which story came last? Oh, it's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> uh, was it the mutants? Oh, wait, Anybody else? Suspense, Lee. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, he doesn't know. He's guessing. I've just asked you to guess, Mark. Come on. The mutants. Anybody like to guess at anything else? Time monster? Yeah. Time monster. No. Oh, we've got a blue box diddly-dum split here. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read a couple of notes about the story that came last, and you'll find out which one it is. Drew Walco said, I have an enormous soft spot for Bob Baker and Dave Martin scripts, <laughs> as they're generally full of the kind of nutty, far-out ideas I love in my Doctor Who. And while The Mutants has a wonderful central concept of metamorphosis and decently well-made points about colonialism, there just isn't really enough incident to drive the plot for six episodes. And it's the unfortunate recipient of some truly diabolical acting performances, from the sheer woodenness of Rick James Cotton to the scenery chewing of Paul Whitson Jones as the Marshal, with Garrick Hagen's turn as Kai barely registering in between. The stuff in the cave with Sondergaard is good, and the electronic score by Tristan from Carey is moodily effective, but in the end, this one just feels like a story with potential that ended up undercooked on multiple fronts. Mm. Meanwhile, Matt Barber said, The Mutants for Wookie Hull. <laughs> and finally, Sean M. Vale said, To be honest, these last two are interchangeable for me. The other one being the Time Monster, which you voted fourth. In the end, I've watched the Time Monster more than this one, so it came in higher. This has got some lovely monsters. Themes seem a little heavy-handed to me now, but maybe that's retrospect. Still, a good, engaging story. Right, guys, I think we've covered the mutants. <laughs> <laughs> I think the monsters and the mutants are really good. I think they're what the Zarbi could have been. Or should have been. Yeah. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. They're, they're beautiful design. And mm. the, the target cover was the thing that always, uh, you know, kind of terrified me as a kid looking at that. And I thought, they're going to be great. And when I finally got to watch it, of course, I was uh, pretty disappointed. But they weren't bad. Not bad men in masks, I thought. But, uh, yeah, what was that story all about? Big nothing, really. I think it's an interesting concept, but I think they try and stretch it over too many episodes, which is mm. a bit of a common theme. About you, Rev, what yeah. did you... do? You, what's your memory? Well, I can Go tell on. you. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what. Uh, here's, a, here's a treat for you. A massive shape scuttles out of the darkness and strikes the <laughs> earth overlord down. It is a mutant, a huge insectoid creature. And uh, that sums it up for me, really. And I always, uh, it's the, it is the design again for me, because it's always the thing that excites me the most. And, uh, yeah, you're right, the mutant is a beautiful thing. And uh, it's one of these Doctor Who areas that's got creepy fish eyes. And um, mm. I've got a real big thing that terrifies. If you've heard me talk about the fish people the other week, I've got a thing that ter fish terrify yeah. me. Mm -hmm. Creepy things with the gills and the guts and stuff. And uh, am I right in thinking that a mutant's head was um, going to be... Um, Used um, uh, where are we? Um, well, there's one in Brain of Morbius. Yeah, Morbius. It was going to be Morbius's head, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. when he's coppling so, together the bits so of the alien. Chops it off and he says, "This will, this will do it all. Take it back." <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, it's the design, and there's some beautiful, there's some beautiful yeah. sets in it. So there's some good lighting in it. Some nice, uh, you know, these dark, bluey tones, and uh, I notice you're avoiding any reference whatsoever to acting. Um, well, 
I've got a, another. Uh, the other thing that gets gets me here is it's a John Pertwee story and it's a six episode. Uh, and I'm really sorry um, if uh, I know Mark's been asked to be nice about John Pertwee, but I, <laughs> I'm you haven't, so you're fair. <laughs> uh, I haven't. Um, I find him quite a nasty person sometimes, actually. Yes. Uh, at last, somebody um, else with a bit of sense. Right, Thank you, Rep. It's quite snappy, and uh, yeah. occasionally, occasionally you'll put a nice line into Joe, uh, like almost a winky line, to let him know he's all right. Phil Mitchell does that on EastEnders. I, I saw him <laughs> at EastEnders last night. Phil Mitchell giving a kiss of life to a dog and bringing it back to life. <laughs> 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 it's, it's, it's a bit like that. Um, so I, I do get bored of six episodes stories and um mm. I, don't, I don't seem to i don't have a link with john pertwee i think any time i watch a john pertwee story i'm just thinking oh, not not long till tom comes into it though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> lovely. That, goes, that goes back to sunday mornings watching it on uk gold with mm. a hangover just thinking mm. oh, how many more weeks till i can get up and watch tom <laughs> can i just say before we move off of this one this is my on. third attempt to watch the mutants and it's the first time i've actually watched it all the way through Mm. Oh really? Mm. Do you know uh, the uh, the mutants? There's some lovely lighting and some lovely um, location shooting, but the stuff in the well spaceport, for want of a better word, where the Doctor first arrives, mm. the bit with the pods, it's just so bad. Mm. You know, people complain about the over lighting in John Nathan Turner and the poor sets and some of the stories mm. there, but. This is just so bad. Yeah, it's a bit worries of the deep, isn't it? The lighting in that place. Yeah, the mutants is just... Uh, do you know what? It's the absolute epitome of the Terence Dix Doctor Who being at its last of the summer winest. <laughs> do you know what I mean? All the ideas, all the comedy, all the characters could happily be transposed into some real middle-of-the-road, run-of-the-mill sitcom and I don't think anybody would really notice, quite frankly. <laughs> they always have a scouter to... in uh, 70s sitcoms, didn't they? Well, but you know what? I find the mutants really watchable because I always think if there's a dull Doctor Who, it will be enlivened no end by a bad performance or an over-the-top performance. <laughs> and this story is full of both. <laughs> Oh, yes. oh yeah, Cotton is amazing, isn't he? It's, it's, <clears throat> I think that's possibly up there as as the worst bit of acting in Doctor Who ever. Um, I don't know if anybody else agrees with me on that one. I think the world agrees with you on that one. Hurrah! First time. There, there is some competition, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, nobody. Uh, there's some competition to equal it, but I don't think there's any competition to better it. No. Al, when do you remember yeah. the first time you ever saw the mutants? Uh, yeah, it was when it came out on DVD. Um, because prior to that, and most. Oh wow! Yeah, well, with the exception of the Sea Devils, um, my familiarity with season nine up until they came out um, on DVD was solely based on hardback library Target books. So. I'm a bit, um, I'm a bit sort of missing this. So all I can really do is the standard observation of it opens with a Monty Python reference and ends with, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and ends with a remarkably complicated effect shot that. Um, 
Did you spend the 20 minutes in between me asking you to join us on this podcast and me calling you up on Skype doing research into who died and who was born? Uh, No, no, I didn't, because I didn't quite have enough time. But in 1972, if I remember correctly, it was a bit of a freakish year because most of Miracle Day was based on it in that nobody died through the whole year of 1972. And seeing as I wasn't born in 1972, nobody was born either. So um, I sort of did a little bit of research, but only very fleeting. <clears throat> Made up research? Uh, well, you Fictional could research? Mm, yeah, sort of, but I think it's true. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Hmm. Um, we've got one more word on the mutants from... Oh, this came from the 42 to Doomsday Facebook account, which I assume is Mark, but which might be Rob, uh, who voted the mutants third and said mainly because the day I purchased this, my cousin, who had come along with me, purchased 20 other titles as well. The look on my aunt's face when we got back was priceless. Mm. And he's actually talking about the book there, because uh, being contrary, he decided to do his list of the five stories in order of the uh, quality of the novelizations. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I think that was Mark, but it might have been Rob. Um, okay, it's not much of a guess then at what came in fourth. But here is an email from David Kitchen. He says, I've noticed most other people have put the Time Monster last, so I thought I'd make a quick comment about why I didn't. I agree that the story isn't one of the best, with some very poor performances. However, there are some great moments. King Dalyar's soliloquy about the curse of Kronos, <laughs> that if you wish for man to have unlimited food and wine, you must accept a lazy and drunk people, is simply gorgeous. Equally moving is Galia's reaction to learning that her husband has been, murders, has been murdered. The time monster deserves to exist for these moments alone. Its other high point is the ending, for on this one rare occasion, the Doctor actually loses. The Master releases Kronos and Atlantis is destroyed. Mm. This is a poignant end to the serial, especially the scene of Galea standing alone in the midst of a dying city. I've managed to pronounce her name in two different ways already <laughs> in the space of the last 30 seconds. This loss by the Doctor also gives the Master some much needed credibility and adds realism to the battle between them. That was David Kitchen, mm. um, the, four to do, the 42 to Doomsday guys. Mm. said um, the Time Monster was the story they picked in fifth place and said, was Uncle Terry trying at this stage? <laughs> Meanwhile, Sean M. Vale said, I actually enjoy this whenever I watch it. The stuff on Earth is far superior to the Atlantis rubbish and is so much fun that it raises the quality of the whole story. Meanwhile, Drew Walco voted it first and <laughs> says, <laughs> well, I think I voted it second. I voted it second as well. Aye. Uh, Drew Walco says, yes, I voted it top. Yeah. It's gloriously silly, and I love the way it suddenly becomes an Atlantean soap opera for a couple of episodes, whilst the story at the research centre has obviously run its course. Chicken Shoot Kronos is a hoot. The unit family are all present and correct. It's one of Benton's best stories, in fact. Mm -hmm. And Delgado is always eminently watchable. It's Comfort Food Who, at its best for me, a story that I'll frequently put on just to have fun watching Doctor Who. And I couldn't agree with him mm -hmm. more. Absolutely. Yeah. I it, think he's absolutely right. He is right. It's a really fun watch, isn't it? And um, I thought uh, with the... Um, uh, Richard Delgado, who's he? Roger Delgado, that um, it felt like that master 
it was quite similar to the type of master that we got uh, recently, where he was marrying, uh, uh, you know, a woman and, and and showing off his kind of sexual side almost, because he does a lot of uh, a lot of flirting in this, which we don't see uh, normally, and uh, I, I quite like that. It made him a bit more, it gave me more character than normal. We know he likes the clangers and and fighting with swords, but um, you know now now he, he can yeah he can chat up a girl. <laughs> <laughs> I think it works better this season because you're not getting him in every story, so it leaves you wanting more rather than just every se- every story thinking, oh, where's the master going to turn up? Mm. You have to question, though, <laughs> seeing as this was Barry Letts' big finale for the season, whether they were really putting the effort in. <laughs> um, Al, what oh. do you remember of this one? Well, um, it's not that long since I watched this one, uh, The Time Monster, um, and I, I just realised that this is the second one of the evening so far with the Star Wars connection, so that's quite quite good going. Oh, yeah, um, it is, actually. Prowse, the Minotaur, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah, Dave Prowse, and, of course, um, Biggs, uh, as Garrick Hagen's in the last one, uh, which also Al, links Al. to the next scene. Hello! Al, no one said Tom Tit yet. What kind of podcast is this? <laughs> Tom Tit? Yes, I'm sure that'll turn up. Well, that all ties in with the um, with the with the with the larger society because um, cinema had got a lot more permissive during this time uh, with all the um, all the tales of window cleaners and all sorts of stuff like this that was taken off, and there was even looter things breaking out from the states and moving across. So I wonder if there's any uh, I wonder if there's any of that sort of bleeding through into into the series. But but the but the well, it's a weird the, one. Certainly a window cleaner, isn't there? There, there is. is. There is. A window cleaner with a slow hand. Barry, that's <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, though, I cut you off. No, 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 no. That's, that's, um, that's fair enough, because um, a lot of it, what, what I found from re-watching it, um, uh, because we, we watched it for Diddly Dumb not that long ago, was mm. um, that an awful, there's an awful lot of innuendo running through it that does seem to In be your intentional. Endo. It, there we go. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> nah. But uh, yeah, it, and it and it seems to be um, it seems to be something that was that was sweeping through. Not so much a permissive society. I mean, I'm not going all Mary Whitehouse on you here, but it was um, it was all there up to and including lines well, like. Well, I think the the penis shaped TARDIS detector was. Well, fun. yeah, <laughs> that didn't that didn't help. And I'm sorry about your <laughs> coccyx too, Miss Grant. Is another <laughs> phenomenal line. And Ingrid oh, yeah. Pitt. <clears throat> Which is uh, there we go. More like a carry on up Atlantis, wasn't it? Yeah, development. <laughs> and Susan Penhaligon as well. Mm. In a really early role. Yes, yes, she's got some good lines. Assets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 yeah. We can't. We can't not mention the TARDIS interiors. Oh, we can. Wowzers. We can, but it's too late now. <laughs> Well, it didn't make me feel like I had to do the washing up after I'd finished watching it. And what's going on with the it, the Master's TARDIS? It's like he's got a chocolate fountain thing in the middle of the <laughs> console. Yeah, that's ah. how he pulls the beds. Ah. <laughs> chocolate fountain is brilliant. It's like, watch it again, Lee. I it's know, like it is. quackmire. <laughs> uh, the other thing that struck me as well is when they're having that conversation on because they got the video monitor in the roundels it reminded me of the curse of fatal death obviously that came mm. afterwards but mm. it's obviously inspired by that and i don't know if you noticed but the doctor starts talking backwards i thought he was trying to do um Knox box <laughs> <laughs> the whole this is if if 
the mutants was the epitome of Doctor Who being like a sitcom. This story is the pit- is the epitome of Doctor Who actually trying to be a sitcom, isn't it? Well, it's like a cross between a two Ronnie sketch and a play what Little Anne wrote, and parts of it. Yeah, it, oh, it is. Some of the dialogue is straight out of the worm that turned, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yes, shocking. Was it Piggy Malone and, and Charlie Farley? Yeah, which almost, didn't that, didn't that almost start off as a Troughton story? <laughs> what? <laughs> Genuinely, <laughs> pretty much. <It's> a prison <laughs> yeah. in space, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And it's got oh, uh, Omega as Stuart, and oh, that's a weird relationship there, isn't it? Mm. Oh yes. What's the name of his? Um, oh, is it his sister? Uh, what's the thing? I'm trying to work out whether they're supposed to be brother and sister, or lovers, or, no, or they're, what? They're or not. Both. He's her assistant, but she refers to him as my brother. I think in a sort of hippie. Kind of. Ah, right. All a bit creepy. Way out, kind of way. I've I've never been able to really get that. But yes, uh, the relationship between those two is straight out of one of these dreadful early 70s sitcoms, really, isn't it? It is. I I, I think sort of Brian Rick's fast as well, a little bit, perhaps, but maybe not. Yeah, maybe, maybe. (laughs) How do we we all like the time chicken? It's oh, better it's... than the one in Ark in Space. Not in Ark in Space. There isn't a time chicken in that one. Ark in Space. There we go. <laughs> the, the, the invisible chicken oh. in Ark in Space. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. The Crefaces' first appearance and the silence. They're in it too. Oh, dear. oh but you've just you've just made your own connection there, Hal, haven't you? That was my big finish pitch out the window. No, yeah, Ark of Infinity. <laughs> what connects this story with Ark of Infinity Oma- apart from the space Omega chicken? and Rice Krispies. Mm. <laughs> what was the story after this one? Oh, Three Doctors, wasn't it? Yes, and who first appeared in The Three oh, Doctors? Oh, he did yes, yes. Well, he didn't, did he? <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was the invisible space chicken in The Three Doctors. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. See it and it all, all ends with everyone stood there laughing at Benton's willy. Oh, yeah. Oh, Fantastic. Yeah. Well, oh, I'm sorry, Rev. That oh, yeah, was just a little bit <laughs> too much. <laughs> <filled with laughs> <this. laughs> It is a silly ending, isn't it? In fact, fact, what Jairus can do is slow your voice down so it sounds even more (laughs) perfect. Do you know what, though? You're right. Silly ending to a silly story. Mm. But I have to say, on a moment-for-moment basis, probably the most pleasurable story of the entire season. If not... Well, no, perhaps not, because there are two or three... I was going to say, one of the things that annoys me about the Pertwee era is that he takes it far too seriously. And I think this is one of the occasions where, although probably he's taking it quite seriously, everyone else is having a a bit of a laugh. Mm. Uh, Do you think it's because it's the one that was made last that year and everybody by this point, three years into the John Pertwee era, was thinking to themselves, oh my God, this guy is driving me up the wall. (laughs) Okay, last story, let's all just have a laugh. Do you think it's like the last day of term when you all bring in your games and you just have a bit of a laugh and you don't really try? And the teacher just doesn't get it, does he? So you're all having a laugh behind the teacher's back and the teacher's getting driven up the wall. And there's Pertwee. (laughs) Not that I'm, you know, not that I'm, sorry Grant, we're not having a go at Pertwee here, but we are. I've been very positive in what I've said so far. Have you? Yeah. Oh, I can't say I'd quite noticed. I think it was remarked that Pertwee's, um, was it um, uh, the Rev, that said that Pertwee was a little bit nasty. Um, yeah. Or yeah. Gen- genuinely 
kind of nasty. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I kind of like that about him, actually. I know that William Hartnell was a little bit tetchy in the first episode, and uh, the, especially the pilot as well. He's quite nasty in that. And I actually thought that, that worked quite nicely. It's quite nice to have a daughter that is a little bit horrible. Um, Lee, that... was your nan a bit nasty? <laughs> no, she was lovely. <laughs> oh. but, but, she did, but she did look like him, yeah. <laughs> she made great rock cakes. <laughs> Guys, I said I was going to do an email in between each of the, oh. didn't I? But I forgot to do one in between oh, the last JR. two stories, so I'd better do one now. And then we can maybe finish with one at the end. Um, this is from Mark Whiteley. He says, hello, blue boxers. Hey. And hello. diddly dummers. Long, <laughs> long time no right. I'm still listening regularly and enjoying every episode as much as ever. Thank you for making my constant driving for work a lot more enjoyable than it would be otherwise. I wanted to give my opinion on Turn Left after listening to your discussion about it being a dream for Donna, so therefore not real. It made me think of a line in my favourite Harry Potter book, which I think sums up the way I see the episode. Harry, is this real, or has it been happening inside my head? Dumbledore, of course it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean that it is not real? Take care, guys. And that was from Mark Whiteley. <laughs> Actually, confused. there's nobody here who was involved in that conversation, is there? No, I don't know what you're talking wasn't about. Wasn't it Dr. Light? That was me and Dee, wasn't it? Oh, was it you and I? Yeah. I couldn't remember if it was you and me or Simon. Page from Trainspotting there, wasn't it? <laughs> right, the story that came third. Anybody like to take a guess? I'm pretty sure it's going to be the Curse of Peladon. Yeah, mm. I third and fourth that. Mm, okay, here we go then. Sean M. Vale says, Alpha is absolutely silly, but I've got a real soft spot for it. Agador isn't much better. The Ice Warriors turning this one is very fun, but how can a slimy head in a jar not going to end, not be going to end up as the baddie at some point? <laughs> some of the silliest production values in Who, but just loads of fun. Uh, 42 to Doomsday, who voted it first... Oh, out of the books, of course. Mm. Said, borrowed this from my school library and loved the world building undertaken to flesh out the TV production. Mm. And Drew Walco, who voted it fourth, said, neither of the Peladon stories ranks among my favourites, but Curse is definitely the superior entry. Making the Ice Warriors into surprise allies is a good twist, and I applaud the production team's attempt to put up the most diverse collection of aliens on screen since the Daleks' master plan. However, Lenny Main is no Douglas Camfield, and this script is no planet-hopping thrill ride. It all comes off flat and plodding for me, and can, and can lull me to sleep as effectively as a volution Venusian lullaby. Oh, if I can get to the end of these. I see what he did there. Very clever. Yeah. Rev, the curse of Peladon. What well, What are your thoughts on the curse of Peladon? Mm, well, I, I do like these episodes where we get a lot of aliens together throughout all of the series, for all, all the stories. Right up to Rings of Akaten. I like seeing a lot of aliens together. It's a Star Wars cantina thing. This predates it. Um, now, so the 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 uh, guy in the jar, Arcturus. <laughs> no, that, that terrifies me. That a little sort of creature, and they nicked it in Blake Seven a few years later. There was another yeah. similar thing that it gave me nightmares and terrified me. It's so they the got web. something. As, is it really? I shall look that one up. 
you can, the fact you can have something like that, such a terrifying creature, uh, such an evil thing, and then next to it you've got, well, shall I say a penis <laughs> in a curtain with an eye? I'm not going to mock uh, monsters in Aliens and Doctor Who. I've had a terrible time trying to think of monsters I actually hate. So um, your upcoming Monsters podcast. Oh, yeah. Who are we to say what monsters look like and aliens look like? I hate it when people say, oh, the monsters are so unrealistic. How do you know? How do you know what a monster (laughs) looks like? They might look like that and all the more terrifying for it, I say. Um, (laughs) I often used to imagine when I was a child uh, my teddies coming to life and stabbing me. Now, that's... <laughs> you imagine, you imagine, you imagine a Kermit the Frog. You've been given a Kermit the Frog oh for your birthday, God. a proper Kermit, a proper Kermit the Frog that looks uh, looks just like him. You imagine it coming to life and stabbing you on night. That's more scary than a murderer stabbing you like that, yeah. So, anyway, do not, do not mock monsters. Mm. We don't know what they're like, we don't know why they're like. We should never, we should never judge a creature by our own our own biology. Mm. Mm. I find it very hard to imagine that there's many species out there in the rest of the universe that have evolved with a zipper up their back, though, hidden by a flap of cloth. Well, you never I don't know. know. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Al, what are your thoughts on... Uh... Well, um, yeah, this is this is a really odd one because I've got a very very solid memory from when I was young of reading the book of, uh, for this um, on um, on a school trip and listening to a Red Walkman, but I can't even remember where we went on the school trip or what we were on. It's just that we were on a coach and I was reading it, and I found I found this story based on initially going through this, uh, going through the um, going from the, my memories from the novel because I had very vivid memories of it until I saw it because I only saw it when it came out in the box set I hadn't seen it prior to that and it, it was um, the Agador I, I found very very frightening because I got a bit of a, a phobia about werewolves I think I had the same Kermit as you as well Rev probably not the same <laughs> one exactly the same one because I don't think it could walk but it did go missing so you never know and, <laughs> yeah but um, but I found I, I found the Curse of Peladon really creepy. And the other thing about it that was a bit weird was, although I wasn't over keen on reading any of the text articles in Doctor Who Weekly, I would look at the pictures. And the pictures from, uh, you know, like the, the, the shots that were taken on set um, during the making or, or whatever, or during rehearsals for Curse of Peladon, they're really good. And until you see until you see them actually moving, they don't look too bad. Um, Arcturus definitely looks really scary there's something not right about him um so yeah that doesn't help does it <laughs> <laughs> um, i think we're having a bit of trouble with the revs feed but you three continue talking and i'll see if i can get him back okay, i'm okay. still here oh he's still, oh, he's still here, here. He's just yeah. oh he's showing up as dead on my skype feed that's awful you must have a much more <laughs> um, well, uh, Monster of Peladon for, for me, sorry, Curse of Peladon, isn't it? Uh, they're pretty similar, aren't they? Um, yeah, they are. Firstly, they don't have badger people in, so that's a plus. But mm. um, secondly, I, I remember watching this for the first time. Uh, Joe, you might be able to tell me, actually. Um, I, it wasn't in the Five Faces of Doctor Who, was it? Oh, it was Doctor Who and the Monsters. Thank you, The yeah. following year. About yeah. 85, 84, something like that. 
Um, no, it was earlier. It was like 83, maybe, 82, 83, something like that, okay, yeah. Yeah, so that would have been 11 or 12. And I remember watching it in the front room, uh, trying to convince two, two German students, who were both girls, uh, who were staying with us, who I pretty much, pretty <laughs> yeah. much, pretty much fancied. Um, and so I, I said to him, this is the best science fiction you've ever seen. And it came on, and I'd never oh, seen dear. it before. Uh, and we watched it, and they were bored within about 10 seconds. And... Uh, yeah, there was no chance. I, I I had no chance with them. But uh, it was um, I was quite disappointed actually. I was expecting a lot more um, at the time. But since then, rewatching it on VHS and UK Gold and DVDs and stuff, I don't know. I've got a bit of a soft spot for this series. I think I'm like the Rev with the monsters. I know they're ridiculous, but I don't really care. I mean, it's like people having to go at the web in Blake Seven Cent. It's the worst thing because. The creatures are straight, stupid, and uh, the bloke in the tank turns up again, Arcturus, um, and he's rubbish. But I don't care that those kind of things. I, I can I can put to one side um, and just go, great, that's an alien race. I'll suspend my disbelief and uh, and go with it. It was great, and the Ice Warriors being you know being kind of goodies in a way. Um, that was absolute stroke of genius, I thought, but it was too long. Definitely too long. It was only four episodes. Yeah. It was a short one. So two episodes would have been good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was. It could, th- it could have been a bit more Agatha Christie. You could have made it even more kind of mysterious. Um, you know, in its. It was all way. pretty much spelled out from it, the start. It was really, yeah. But not. It wasn't bad. That's what's in the middle. I think. It's um, again. It's. Do you know, in fact, this whole season for me, apart from Day of the Daleks at the start, this whole season feels to me like Doctor Who, like Terence Dix and Barry Letts Doctor Who on autopilot. Yeah. The situations, characters and storylines all feel just a little bit too cosy and familiar. Mm. Um, The first episode of this one, where they've got the stuff on the mountainside, and where they see the Ice Warriors and then discover the Ice Warriors are actually the good guys in this one rather than the bad guys. Those are the only times after Day of the Daleks, I think, when there's any kind of peril or mystery or jeopardy in the entire run of four stories, you know, that follows Day of the Daleks. Um, so Curse of Peladon has kudos to it for that for actually managing to throw a couple of surprises in at the start of the story and a little bit of jeopardy. But, you know, apart from that, it's just a case of are the characters fun enough Mm. to engage you in what's Mm. going on? And this story's got such a hodgepodge of fun characters like Alpha Centauri and Arcturus Mm. and then really dull ones like Hepesh. And sad to say, the king, um, David Troughton as well great actor mm. and brings as much charm to the part as he can but it's a really dully written role for him yeah. well, Mark, I, go on sorry I, I made some notes on this so for anyone who's uh, disappointed that I haven't been very negative so far here we go <laughs> um, <laughs> dull yeah Alpha Centauri what a dick <laughs> uh, <Hey>. Ponzi royalty <laughs> Ponzi royalty um, Ice Warriors were okay. Haroon, Haroon, Haroon. Oh dear. And Agador, oh dear. And you know what? 
they they right let's do this weird alien song that the doctor can do to sing you know agador to sleep yeah, yeah okay let's come up with a you know a, a a rhythm a melody for it sorry a melody for it <laughs> well what melody should we use oh i know let's use a christmas carol that's weird and alien isn't it well, well he's already done the sailor's hornpipe hasn't he that was that was taken so mm. oh dear it's just Oh, it just that just to me epitomizes the level of creativity that was going on in Doctor Who during 1972. You know, it's come up with an alien melody. God rest ye merry gentlemen. It would have been. It's got to be John Pertwee that came up with that because he he's a musician and a folk singer, isn't he? Um, <laughs> and that plainly he must have thought. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great idea. Let's let's do that one, and uh, and out he comes with it. Haroon, 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 and you think. Um, <laughs> It's bloody Wurzel Gummer just turned up early for. <laughs> yep. See, yeah, I, I'll just improvise something there. Go on. <laughs> no one will. But you know what? Barry Letts and Terran Sticks go along with it, yeah. or at least you know Barry Letts does on behalf of both of them. But I'm, I'm sure they talked it out through rehearsals, and everybody said, "Yeah, what a great idea." <laughs> and and you know what I mean? That's. Do you know what feeling I get there from that? Though it's like that episode of The Office where. Um, where they're watching a video in the warehouse of uh, David Brent's dog doing something rude with someone else's dog, and, and the boss goes, it's just one big boys' club, isn't it? That's what this is, isn't it? it yeah. I, recently, when I've heard, read interviews um, where um, Benton's been saying, oh, Tom Baker came in and he spoiled it all, you know, it's because it wasn't mm. a little gang show anymore, and that's what it is. You've got Terence and Barry with their pipes. Yeah. Buffing away and letting John do what he wants. And... They were just having a party for yeah. four years, weren't they? <laughs> Basically. That's what they were doing. They were yeah. having a party, that's, pointing that's... cameras at it. and That's why the third Doctor's so snappy, because he can't wait to get off filming and go and hang around backstage having a bit of a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Like John Barrett. Likely so. Why do you think Terran sticks and uh, looks the way he is and... Yes, because just a little bit too much party going in yeah, the nineteen seventies. Yeah. I know, I know. The but you know what I'm the saying. Colourful rooms is green. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Terran Sticks looked like somebody who was having a laugh during the nineteen seventies, doesn't he? Oh, having great, fun. Uh, which is not a complaint, by the way. No, he's a lovely man. Be- because but also because I can stick any one of these stories on and really enjoy it. Mm. And like I say, even the mutants, the one that came in last, I can put it on and enjoy it for the performances, but I don't think any of it, apart from maybe the story that came in first, I don't think any of it makes for especially good Doctor Who, good in inverted commas. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Maybe two. Maybe two. Mm. No, I don't think the Sea Devils does either. Oh, oh well. For reasons that we shall come to yeah, in a moment. Sure. Shall we take another email then? Um, Okay, this one's from The Great Intelligence. He says, Hi, Blue Box Boys and Diddly Dummers. Been thinking. (laughs) Has the 50th anniversary year been the year of the shock appearance cameo? They are all over the place. Oswin in Asylum, Smith in the Gatiss biopic, John Hurt and indeed a colour Hartnell in Name of the Doctor, come to think of it, all the Doctors in both Name of and Day of the Doctor, McGann's jaw-dropping return, 
Picaldi's Eyes That Erupted Cinemas, Tom Baker as the curator, Amy Pond at Smith's Regeneration. Has this shock cameo kept secret been a theme of the Moffat era? If so, what might lie in store? Are we shock cameoed out now? And that's from the Great Intelligence. He says, P.S. I wasn't trying to make a big point, only that shock cameos are as much a Moffat era motif as the inclusion of children or everybody lives or ordinary objects are scary, etc. And listening to your children in Who podcast today, it is interesting that while you make the point about an unearthly child, the inclusion of Susan is for identification and aspiration, yet her alien background snookers that, and if anything, the viewing children are tasked with identifying with the story through the teachers. Perhaps this suggests that teachers were a model for aspiration in mm. 1963, mm. not something you would script today. If anything, he says, it is being pitched to the William Russell age group who wonder where their kids go after school. I don't know, Waterloo Road do quite a good job. <laughs> or did. They've finished now, haven't they? Have they? Oh, right, OK. Yeah, last season. The next one is the last season, apparently. It's coming back as a telly movie, though, by Universal in six years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. I'd love to see them cram. I'd love to see them cram all of the uh, every single episode they've ever done, all of the plot lines in an hour and a half. I reckon they could do it. (laughs) Have they done plot lines? (laughs) One every three minutes, Jail. Well, I don't know. I've not watched it. Um, it's, like Grange, okay. it's a bit like Grange Hill on speed, really. I, uh, I, I've been listening to your children uh, podcast today. I haven't finished listening to it yet. Oh, and I, I, good. I was going to email, um, but um, I don't believe you mentioned the um, the girl in Remembrance of the Daleks. Oh, oh, good point. I was going to email and mention that because I thought, and I, and I did actually think maybe you haven't mentioned it because it is actually such good, credible, subtle use of a child. <laughs> because yeah, it's like, you're right. She's like um, a character from The Shining or something. She's a proper horror child, isn't she? When you yes. first her, and then the reveal at the end, you actually completely sympathise with her. I think it's a very good uh, use of a child character there. A, a serious moment from me there. I'll shut up. Now. <clears throat> there's also oh, no, one, you're right, there's also another one I think you missed as well. Um, in uh, Reign of Terror, there's a young lad who saves the Doctor's life. Oh yes, but uh, he's that not really, really a main count. <laughs> No, he's so, not a main character. I'm, I'm just to tie story. you back to this podcast. Of course, you've got the uh, the the scallywag off the stage from Oliver in the Time Monster. God blow me, Atlantis is stinking, Mister, or whatever he says. <laughs> <laughs> it's his only line. It's only yes. a, not there Did, in the city or anything there. Like you know what? I oh, go on. Sorry, Al. Yeah, sorry. It's just I, I um I I just had a thought then with what the Great Intelligence said, which was um which was I. I I think that possibly, yeah, you might be onto something with the with the whole Moffat thing. But um, RTD did do surprise guest appearances, but he stuck them with um, surprise guest appearances from, with the exception of the Master, which was a bit of a chance, uh, with Rose and Daleks, because they were both kept secret. Because they managed to keep the Daleks secret until the end of um, series two. Yeah. And then Rose was cropping up. In fact, Rose cropped up at the end of um, oh, was it um, Smith- series four? Series four, yeah. But she cropped oh, up on and out. The first story, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was the, there was his long goodbye as well. He saw everybody, didn't he? Ah, uh, mm. yeah, yeah. But the long goodbye. But we're talking. But, I never expected midshipman frame. <laughs> but Al's talking about Sorry. the very first episode in that series where there's a little cameo from Rose right yes. at the end of it. Do you remember? Y- yeah, yes, with, uh, the, with the keys, car keys into with the, the car bin. Keys, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was but very that, good. I was I, I was actually 
pretty uh, surprised, and that was that was a fantastic moment. And I thought, yes, please, I want more of those. Um, it wasn't spoiled, I don't think. What I was going to suggest no. is that um, what RTD was doing there, what Russell T Davis was doing there, was he was playing within the the context of the show since it had returned as much as possible. Again, with the exception of the master, but then he was introduced and changed, so we'll skip that. Oh, and the Toclophane, of course, with um, yeah, with um, him cropping back up. But um, he was playing within the stuff that the audience would know, whereas Moffat yes. has been much more fan friendly, and yes. he chanced his arm, but he used the fact that it was the fiftieth anniversary to largely indulge himself because prior to that yeah. with the exception of Madame Kavorian that's probably it yes sorry I think you're, I think you're right <laughs> no, completely yeah. agree we're thinking completely agree <laughs> yeah yeah you're right oh shush now uh, <laughs> that was just uh, a, a quick sort of oh yeah, wait <clears throat> okay we'll move on shall we to the story that our listeners have voted second mm-hmm yeah uh, okay everybody's gonna this is gonna be a bit of a loving now I suspect um, Sean M. Vale votes this story first and says, Beautifully shot, some lovely acting, especially from Pertwee, one of his best comedy moments, another wonderfully ham-fisted plan for world domination from the master, a sword fight so good they put it in twice, and I actually really liked the soundtrack. Uh, that's what Sean M. Vale had to say about it. Drew Walco voted it in second and said speaking of Delgado's master he's one of the factors that elevates a story that on paper is a more simplistic retread of Doctor Who and the Silurians into a fondly remembered classic his chummy repartee with the Doctor belies what a dangerous and cunning if balmy adversary the master was and should be the real star of this story is the location filming as the combination of the Navy hardware, along with the iconic shots of the Sea Devils rising from the water, give a sense of scope that is rarely achieved in classic Doctor Who. And finally, on the 42 to Doomsday Facebook feed, they voted it second, this being the novel of course, and say, hmm. Hulk pushes the boat out on this, adding telling details to the narrative that really build on the TV version. Plus, from memory, there's a wonderful scene early in the story that more or less evokes Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Innsmouth, yeah. Oh, which sounds like we've got two people on this podcast who know what he's talking about, yeah. Yeah. and I'm neither of them. <laughs> I'm, wonder I'm wondering whether they did actually read that and think, oh, we need to do a creature like that. Or whether it's just oh I've seen a lot of B movies let's do a creature walking out of the you know out of the ocean with gills uh, and big eyes same big eyes as the mutants strangely enough actually mm. oh mm. it's, it's this the thing from the sea isn't yeah. it it's the thing that sleeps beneath the sea that's very yeah. Lovecraft yeah they also look like um, rotten rabbits yeah <laughs> what <laughs> I can see that I can skinned rotted rabbits yeah they look like rotting rabbits. I never thought Skinned of that. Skinned rabbits, no, no, yeah. I mean, some, some of you live in the countryside, you know these things. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Somebody said to me the other day, that somebody said to me how funny they, their, their, their friends find it when they come to Yorkshire and they see um, roadkill and they laugh and go, oh, you love your roadkill in Yorkshire. Like it's something, it's something odd and bizarre. But maybe people do find it odd and bizarre. Maybe they Oh well, we live in Devon, so we get a lot of roadkill down here. But ours is a higher class. It tends to be stags down here. <laughs> Unicorn. <laughs> Unicorn. <laughs> yeah. No, anyway, I'm... back to the sea devils. Yeah, sorry. I'm... 
<laughs> I may as well I'm talking already but uh, Sea Devils uh, one of my favourites I think it's it, like the um, email earlier it's a combination of brilliant locations which I love um, film locations anyway in Doctor Who the fact that John Pertwee's in his element because it's naval business that he's, he's enjoying uh, you know again the master is absolutely on, a, on top form being ridiculous with his disguises and escaping from things um, the clangers make an appearance and that and the music is great you know that business absolutely love it um, the whole thing the whole feeling of it is is atmospheric and lovely and yes I'm a bit of a Cthulhu fan so maybe that's you know the Lovecraftian thing comes through there and uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it I don't know whether I voted it top or, or second but I couldn't decide between that and day of the Daleks but uh, no thoroughly enjoyed it one of my favourites it's one of those ones that we all absolutely remember from our childhood, whether we actually saw it in our childhood or not, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I've got a newfound appreciation for the music. I found it very annoying the first time I watched it, <laughs> but um, Simon, who's not here tonight, on his radio show, he played a, a remix by Paul Hartnell from... Oh, <laughs> Orbital. Uh, what are they called? Orbital. Orbital, yeah, that's the brilliant. one. Um, brilliant. And it's really good. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, I don't hate it quite so much now. And what about the story it, so yeah what about the story good. mark <laughs> the story yeah i think uh, the one of the people who wrote in said it really helped having the navy in it i think it does give it that extra bit of kind of gravitas if you like when you see the location work mm. um so yeah there's that to it they're, they're a memorable monster but i think when you actually see them up close and personal. They're not really that impressive, no. are they? I know. It's a really you know, nice design, a... but oh, really yeah. badly achieved in that. Oh, hello. Is... Oops. Somebody's making weird music in the background. The yeah, tower. sorry about that. Is that That's your... all right. Is that oh. your baby playing the piano? <laughs> 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 That's amazing. Is, is that your telephone? It is, yeah. <laughs> Just throw it across the room. <laughs> Excuse it's, me a moment while I take this. I t- is it Simon? I told you in Devon we got a higher class down here. Listen to that ringtone. Um, the the <laughs> Sea Devils. Um, Do you uh, know in Cornwall they have basilisks for roadkill? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it is a retread of um, the Silurians, though, isn't it? Don't you think? Um, yeah, but you know what's missing, Lee? Yeah. In the Silurians, you actually had a sense that the Silurians were a society. Yes, you did. In the Sea Devils, all you've got is some guys walking around in plastic masks. Yeah. That that is the weak part of of the Sea Devil. It doesn't have that same belief, you know, that, that they've got a system of, um, you know, kind of a society like you say. And when they go sort of falling about as they're trying to emerge from the sea. Yeah. Did you ever watch Pebble Mills? There's a clip of Pebble Mill where they're all... Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, the Draconian's there. I think a Cyberman's yeah. there. And yeah. there's a sea devil. Cyberman goes uh, through the pane of glass. Goes through the pane of glass. <laughs> really bad. walks over it. <laughs> <laughs> but the sea devil's just wobbling from side to side. Plainly, the person mm-hmm. in it can't see where he's going and he's just told to rock back and forth. And, it, it yeah, it does look a bit bloody stupid, doesn't it, I suppose? But And then... In the two main guest characters you've got, you've got Edwin Richfield, who's a nice actor. I like him as an actor. He's playing a fairly dull part. And then you've got Clive Morton, who's really not that far away from Paul Whitson Jones in The Mutants. It's, again, (laughs) season nine doing over-the-top characters and dull characters, but, you know, never getting anywhere near doing somebody who feels like a real human being. 
You know in, what I mean? Yeah. The, the weird mm. thing is because I I've because um, this is another one that I remember reading uh, when I this was this time I remember reading yeah. the Caravan and I remember being surprised because the book <laughs> was so thick I knew it was going to be a nightmare to get through so that'll show you how small I must have been. But um, I can remember some illustrations. But I can remember one of the things with Trenchards um, is I can remember sort of statements about the fact he wore a pork pie hat. And that, to me, really <laughs> gave me an image of who the guy was. Mm-hmm. What in your head at that age was a pork pie hat. Yeah, you? did you think he was balancing like some pastry <laughs> yeah, on his yeah, I did, I did. <laughs> but there's a bit, there's a really subtle bit right at the end, because um, I think in the Target book, Malcolm, there's a layout that, uh, of Malcolm Hulk's where it shows how he structured the Sea Devils to rise in intensity as the story goes on, so that, so that it's written to drive you forward through it as a reader. But there's also some really good character beats. I mean, this is something that people say a lot of times about Malcolm Holt's oh, conversations yeah. anyway. But there's a bit when it turns out that Trenchard has died largely because his gun doesn't fire because he left the safety catch on. And I think mm. the doctor turns the safety catch off so he doesn't look like an idiot in death. And that yes. was a really... That really struck me as, as, a, as, a, as a child, as a, as a moment. And I still remember that now as being something that was... And how would you show that in in the John Pertwee half hour? <clears throat> well, well, the point John is, Pert- in order to show that in the John Pertwee half an hour, you'd have to cast a different actor as the Doctor, oh, because oh. you wouldn't believe that John Pertwee would do something as kind as that. Oh, that's exa- exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, sorry, Lee. No, 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 that's exactly what I was going to say. But you're absolutely right. He, he, would have, he would have laughed at the fact that it was left on, wouldn't he? Oh yeah, yeah. Rev, Rev, your thoughts on the Sea Devils? Um, I'm just trying to remember. I'm sure I had a story. I don't know if it is this one. Did they have to wear the string vests so that yes. they would have Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. It's a big fish, isn't it? But then again, the other day I only found out that the uh, werewolf in um, Tooth and Claw was CG because to do a full makeup prosthetic one would have meant it couldn't be shown before the watershed. So there you oh. go. Maybe a Sea Devils bit. See, they could have gone further with the Sea Devils because they had like the string vest. They could have had like the little um, pork pie like, hats. Yeah. No, no, they could have had a uh, handkerchief with knots in it on their heads. <laughs> oh, yeah. full Gumby. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and Union and Jack shorts. Yeah. This is like, um, visually, this is sort of like the mood board of the Pear Twee era, isn't it? This episode. It's where you've got a mixture of everything. You've got unit in it, you've got Special effects, explosions, guns. Um, Stuart Fell wiggling his bum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You've got some <laughs> ecological stuff going on. It's very much set on Earth. The aliens are already on Earth. Um, JR, I find it very interesting that you often mention uh, stories where you would say it's a rehash or a remake of something. So Night Terror is, is the empty child. Yeah. World War is Dalek. Now, is this not just the Silurians? Well, no problem with that, but it is. It's well, I'll think of it more of a remake of "You Only Live Twice." To be honest, <laughs> is that the one with the giant underwater sea base? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, there you go. That's what I think of it as. The one thing I do like of this because I have via via the um, Dibley Dum podcast, I have been watching a lot more John Pertwee than I ever have done of recent, which is why is I'm that... sort of developing a. I don't know, an impression of him and an idea of him. One of the things that I'm also developing an idea and an impression of is that um, although they say it's the unit area and they've got this amazing military task force, when they're in it, a lot of the time they're not actually really in it. There's a couple of them in it. They're like just like some blokes who are playing at armies, like um, 
like the bloke in um, Frenchie Perry, Fairly Secret Army. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's yeah. like there's a couple of blokes playing at it. Whereas in this episode, it actually is like it's a proper military thing. You've got the master in a in a in a secret prison, and uh, you know it. It actually feels a lot more proper this one to me. But don't you don't you love the uh, the little tiny cars? The fr- what's that French car? I was called? just about to bring the cars up. Oh, the, the, oh, the two CVs. Two with CVs. The doors taken off. That's right. The doors taken off, and the little French berets and the guys with the tashes. Uh, the, the whole thing it looks like a 118 advert it's brilliant absolutely brilliant you know uh, that, that links back you know, to the prisoner doesn't it the mini mercs yeah yeah this is how you know it's the future the yeah. cars don't de- <laughs> the cars don't need doors anymore people can't steal from them because they're so futuristic the difference is the mini mercs were cool whereas the two TVs look a bit Oh, that's brilliant! That's what could have thought, oh, it? Mark, you man with no heart, you. Yeah, I had yeah, a two. I, I had a two CV. Careful. <laughs> I, I think they look great and um, very daft. But then I like to think of season nine as just daft from start to finish, and I think they fit in perfectly with the rest of it. Was uh, Havoc involved with this? Weren't they the um, stunt team? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, big time. I think yeah. they had a really good, uh, good fun. And I think also you probably know you guys. Uh, somebody was it? Maybe the, I don't know. Somebody from the crew or the director even was was dressing up and getting shot. I can't remember now. Oh, I don't know. Probably. No. Do you know what I found really evocative about this? The first episode where they take a boat across to the island and stuff yeah. like that. Mm. It made me think. Oh, the Doctor and Joe are going on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's it cheap, did. Chappy. It really felt like a holiday that you'd take in the 1970s where you'd have to go on a boat to an island. Yeah, they were incredibly nice to the master. I mean, it's it's it's, it's nice to see that. You can see it through the acting that they're all friends, mm. really, aren't they? Yeah. But in, in a story sense, it doesn't make that much sense. It's a bit crazy because, you know, if you think about the things that he's tried to do already up to that point, like destroy the entire world on many occasions... And and kill people, um, you know, pretty much, and yeah. end, their, end their lives. The doctor's pretty kind of like, you know, it's quite okay about it. And uh, and I think Joe says, "Oh, are they treating you all right?" <laughs> you kind of think, well, I think in my experience of watching this as a Pertwee skeptic, the the couple of things that I cling on to are oh, you said cling on oh, <laughs> uh, are Delgado. He's bloody brilliant, yeah. um, and also Nick Courtney. You know, ninety nine percent of the stuff he's in, he's really good, mm. um, and that's what makes it bearable. Of course, he's not in this one, Mark. No, I know, but I'm just talking as generally in the, speaking the, in a generality in that in that particular era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go on, him. Go on. Okay, then this is from Matt Barber. Hello, Matt. And Matt says, "Dear blue boxers and diddly dummers." Oh. <laughs> I loved the podcast about the Doctor and Companion Free episodes, a really neat dissection of the reasons and consequences of giving actors a holiday. I would suggest one thing, though. In the podcast, you suggested that coming up with a story that didn't feature the Doctor forced the writers to up their game. I always got the impression that the character of the Doctor was a difficult one to write, an alien, all-knowing, fast-talking genius who isn't keen on explaining himself isn't the easiest way to maintain dramatic tension in a plot. The best writers, for example Robert Holmes with a Deadly Assassin or The Ark in Space, are able to create this drama in a story focusing entirely on the Doctor, whilst the weaker writers, for example Eric Sayward with Revelation of the Daleks or Attack of the Cybermen, distances the Doctor from the action because they don't know how to deal with them with him. Mm. 
Doctor Who naturally becomes more dramatic when the Doctor is absent. When freed from the shackles of having to include the Doctor, writers are able to let loose their imagination. Blink and Love and Monsters must have been enormous fun to write because the central characters, Sally Sparrow and Elton Pope, have accessible human voices and are fresh enough to give a real sense of drama to the narrative. Importantly, unlike the Doctor, they are also killable so the sense of jeopardy is heightened. The Doctor Light episodes tend to work well because the writers are given free reign to tell the story they want to, rather than to conform to the format. No idea if this makes sense, but I'm assuming the critique of Eric Sayward gets approval. Love, Matt. Yeah, great email. Thank you, Matt. I would say, though, you know, you're not entirely free to sort of, if you write a story without the Doctor in it, you're not entirely free to write what you like. No. You still have to write a Doctor Who story, but you're missing your main character. I would imagine it's still pretty difficult to try and make it still feel like Doctor Who, but without being able to have the Doctor in. Mm. Because taking the Doctor out doesn't just mean you've taken the character of the Doctor out of the story and you can still write a Doctor Who story. Taking the character of the Doctor, the doctor out means you can't write a Doctor Who story anymore where the Doctor investigates something and then solves it. You have to come up with a different kind of it's a plan. Like, it's like when they got rid of the sonic screwdriver, how are you going to get through the door? It's just like a bigger <laughs> version of getting rid of the sonic screwdriver. Get rid of the Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bidmead Plus. <laughs> Uber Bidmead. That's a, not a pleasant thought. No, please stop using that word on this podcast. Okay. <laughs> Drew Walco says, and he voted Day of the Daleks in third place. He says, the special edition DVD irons out a number of the issues I always had with this story. Oh, God, those Dalek voices. And I appreciate the thoughtful and overdue exploration of time travel paradoxes. A good, solid story. Sean M. Vale also voted Day of the Daleks in third and says a great science fiction plot I think it's got one of the third Doctor's best portrayals he always makes me laugh in this one I will admit that my appreciation for this episode went way up with the remaster which I suppose makes me a philistine and the 42 doomsday people who uh, voted this in fourth for the novel of course said they voted it forth for the Achilles artwork and for my youthful fascination with the depiction of a devastated future Earth. Mm. Guys, these people who've written in mm. have voted Day of the Daleks not in at the top, and yet mm. it's the story that came in first in our, in our poll of our podcast listeners. This is fascinating. I'd like to know how this has happened. Anybody got an idea? <laughs> it's a fix. <laughs> <laughs> How did, how well, tell me, is there anybody here who doesn't think Day of the Daleks is either the best story of the season or at least a standout story? Yeah, I voted it second, I think, and it is. It's it's up there as being one of the most creative and different Doctor Who stories in a while. Um, you know, we we all say that it's a bit of a forerunner to the Terminator. It's a brilliant idea, and it does play with time and 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 consequences of it all quite brilliantly um and normally we don't get time um uh, stories do paradox we? yeah we don't get mm. time stories in doctor who's uh, that often actually we have two in this season time monster as well i suppose kind of counts but um 
Oh, well, it's just fun, isn't it? <laughs> it's just a right load of fun. You can't... What I, mean, I find interesting compare this, exciting. Compare this to... Rev, go on. Sorry, no, I found interesting yeah, go exciting. Go on. Um, there's two ways of looking at Doctor Who I've noticed recently, and it's starting to change the way I think of certain things in my head. One of them is... And one is with your eyes open, and the other one's with your <laughs> eyes shut. But one of them is to think, well, look, we know that it starts in 1963, and it's continuing now, and there's this whole big catalogue of things we can look at and we can compare one story to another and say, yes, that's a rehash of that, or that's this happening, this happening. But the other point of view is that for, for some people, for some lucky people out there, this was their first ever Dalek story. Yeah. Mm, the excitement exactly. that must have been tingling through a child who, uh, who was six or seven and going home to watch Doctor Who on Saturday tea time, they? coming home from Granny's house and, uh, well, the Daleks are back tonight. Daleks, what are they, Dad? Oh, they were amazing. They were the most fantastic monsters ever in Doctor Who. You're going to love it. This was their first Dalek story. And it, it is like Terminator. It's a thrilling science fiction yeah. story. This is a brilliant first Dalek story for someone mm. to watch. I think it's brilliant. And we can look at it thinking, oh, the voices are wrong or this and that. Well, you know, that doesn't matter, does it? Because the core audience, the target audience, the kids, I bet they'd love this. And I bet there's a lot of them that have grown up and this is one of their favourite, favourite ever stories. Do you know what? You're right about the Dalek voices not mattering. I hadn't ever really worried about that until I saw the new version uh, with Nick Briggs doing the voices, which actually is excellent. And, and I thought, yeah. oh yeah, this is, this, is, this is really good. This is how it should have been. But I hadn't thought about it until I saw that kind of edition of it. Um, I bet a lot of people saw it and they heard the voices and they haven't seen Daleks for five years. As far as they remember, that's what we do. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And of course, at the time these all were broadcast, there was no DVDs, no videos, no repeats, no, mm. you know, watch or yeah. BBC Three or UK Gold or whatever. No, no. These stories went out once and that was it. And you know, a story like this to go out once, you'd think. You'd seen something amazing when it was on. That's right. Al, thoughts on Day of the Daleks? Well, my thoughts on Day of the Daleks are a bit weird because we're looking at connections, I'm afraid, from me. Because um, that's oh, what okay. I get initially. Because um, my, my first experience of Day of the Daleks was, um, uh, was probably the X-Men, to be honest. Uh, the X-Men, Chris Claremont, John Byrne. Uh, series uh, with Wolverine and the Sentinels coming back that's uh, that got <laughs> adapted and has been turned into the uh, the X-Men film that should be coming out in the next couple of months because that yeah. series was based on someone watching this so and their memories of it it was an accidental plagiarism which is quite interesting because there's an awful lot of accidental plagiarism surrounding this story of traveling back in time because uh, mm. this may or may not also have sort of bounced off one or other harlan ellison stories uh, it could be soldier from outer limits or demon with a glass hand which was yeah, often held true. up as being um, the influence for terminator um, to the point where there was a there was a, a lawsuit involved, I think, but um, that would have to be checked. But um, you know, so that's that's sort of there. But interestingly, of course, Harlan Ellison wrote the introduction to the Day of the Daleks American edition, which <laughs> obviously had a cover that had been drawn by someone who hadn't seen it because I don't remember the unit spaceship. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they, they those. Came... Are... Yeah, sorry, right, you carry on. You can. I was just going to say that those were released about ten years ago in uh, in the works in these cheap jack kind of bookshops and you could just go out and buy the american copies i didn't even know they existed there were some fantastically weird and funny mm. covers out there anyway carry on they're really strange some of them aren't they the daleks mm. got um the daleks got two guns 
So, um, <laughs> and, and a plunger. Um, yeah, but, um, and the other thing is, of course, I mean, I've got to sort of, I have to, I have to sort of mention that, that the blog that I write got its name from this because of the two ogrons. Because the because um, I write a blog that's called No Complications, so I should um, I should mention that because that's one of the greatest moments in the whole series. But to actually come back to it, because I hadn't seen it until it came out on DVD. So again, um, I so I I knew the story, but I'd never and it's a it's a brilliant story. Whoever wrote it, it's really really good. And um, mm. the the whole idea in, of of time travel and affecting the future from the past and creating the you know but you were always there that sort of a thing is um, it's 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 incredible and Dalek wise I'm not bothered about the Dalek voices at all and I like the I like the shiny Daleks I like uh, Mr Pertwee's gurney face uh, when they're showing <laughs> the credits uh, as they're torturing him you know it's great it's it's a it's a good one it's a good one but my memory largely comes from being gripped. By a big white library edition that I got mm. from a library that that and I had to read I had to read it in a weekend because I only had a weekend to read it because I couldn't take it away with me. But mm. I found it on a Saturday morning and I read it and I must have been about eleven and I'd read the whole thing. But I might have been younger actually. But I'd read the whole thing by that evening because it had to go back um, mm. the next day, which is a long story, but it's, it, I, so, so I had a very, I've got very intense memory of it, a very intense memory of the line drawings and of, of what it must have felt like right at the end to be preparing to press the button to start, you know, for the, for the final gorilla who remains, you know, for him to actually do it. And for, oh, it was just, it did my head in. I have to be honest. It's very good. <laughs> was it, was it's, that a hardback edition that you had? It was, it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, library talk. Oh, I love it. Mm. <laughs> oh. It was. I must have read that book once a year, every year for ten years, I think. Yeah, it's wow. really if not good. more. It's excellent. Book. It was one of the. It was one of the sort of four or five real classics in the range that I just went back to time after time after yeah. time. Yeah. Mark, yeah. thoughts on Day of the Daleks? Yeah, I got a few thoughts. Um, oh, I you've thought written the... them down. Have you? I was going to say the. I think the controller is really good. I think Aubrey Woods. Yeah, and I think they do a really good job of having this. What could have been a quite a, you know, two-dimensional sidekick, but he's got a lot of depth to his character, and he gets a kind of redemption at the end, which I think works yeah. really well. Yeah. And what? And on that point, Mark, before you go on, what's yeah. significant here is not only is this story a time paradox story which has none of the cosy familiarity of the other four stories we've got this series but also unlike those stories which have all got you know caricature characters or cardboard characters mm. in the controller you've actually got a three-dimensional character yeah. he's probably the only guest character non-recurring guest character of the entire season who actually feels like a real person. Yeah. He gets a bit of an arc, yeah, doesn't he? A story arc to him. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So go on, Mark. I, just... I think it's also quite an important one for this era because you've got quite a strong female character amongst the uh, yeah. group there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's quite important for that time because, you know, don't get me wrong, love Joe Grant, but, you know, she's really a bit ditzy, mm. just there to sort of ask the Doctor what's going on. That's pretty much about it. Whereas, yeah, the woman in this kicks butt. Werner, isn't it? Oh, no. Yeah, I'm, I think so. I can't remember now. Um, I'm just looking it up. And one other thing, to to paraphrase Big Bird from this story, um, 
just going back to the Omni rumour for a bit, all those people who are getting themselves all wound up about the big announcement happening at Easter and then going into meltdown because nothing happened, uh, to quote Pertwee, you did it to yourselves! <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, Day of the Daleks, classic. Uh, in spite of the funny Dalek voices and the fact there's only three Daleks in, uh, on Doctor Who's budget, those kind of things are easily forgivable. And everything else about it reeks of classic. Mm. I think if it wasn't for the fact that Robert Holmes was writing Doctor Who at this time, you know, during the poetry years, I think this would stand out as his best story, probably. Yeah. Mm. Do you think? He, do you think he had it written into his contract that he could eat snacks on set um, every single time? Because he does it in a lot of them, doesn't he? In this season. Yeah. Yeah, and I think is he che- cheese and wine in this, in this one, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Don't eat wine. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I said there's no caricature characters in this one, but for the first episode, the mm. Doctor himself is the caricature, yeah. isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very silly, but then it wouldn't feel right if it wasn't at least a little bit silly. Yeah. Shall I do another uh, email? Yeah. Um, yeah, got him. Okay, this last email of the evening before we go. And this is from um, somebody called Doc Whom. Who? Who he? <laughs> Sorry, whom? <laughs> he's, the, he's the missing third of the Diddly Dumb podcast. He says... Do you have something better to do tonight? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I have a plan for him. So. <laughs> That's a woman. <laughs> In fact, he writes so many Saki emails in, I've had several plans for him so far, and one day I'm going to carry one of them out. Um, He says, Gentlemen, I do hate it when I'm forced to stop and think that JR may be right about something. What? Fortunately, this happens only rarely. As a case in point, I initially fumed when you put forward the idea that, in order to have an entry point into Doctor Who, children need someone with whom they can identify, even if it's someone who is slightly older. I can easily understand how this sounds logical to an adult. Of course children will identify with TV characters of their own age group, but who says so? Where's the evidence to support it? Mm. Did Doctor Who's ratings soar when his companions were young teenagers? Did the ratings plummet? when the companion was an adult time lady. I'm often reminded of an interview someone did with a young girl in 2005 when the interviewer asked her slightly patronisingly, and who's your favourite character? Is it Rose? The girl looked a little contemptuously at the interviewer and replied, no, it's the Doctor, of course. This whole notion sounds like the sort of thing that RTD or Stephen Moffat will come out with to justify some writing decision they've made. Shut up. I understand TV writing theory, and you don't. Something which you can see being entirely logical in theory, but is nonsense in fact. It sounds like the sort of thing you'd be taught on a media studies course. Received wisdom with nothing to back it up. However, JR then asked the killer question. Name a great children's book where the main protagonists aren't children. Oh bugger, thought I. (laughs) The cunning old fox has got me there. So, I began to wonder if the theory really is valid, and if so, why it doesn't seem to apply to Doctor Who. Then the double-headed Martian coin dropped. It does apply in Doctor (laughs) Who, but we tend not to notice because the child figure in Doctor Who is the Doctor himself. Yeah. Yeah. 
at least since the Patrick Troughton era, when the template for the Doctor as simultaneously wise and silly began. Not childish, but childlike. The Doctor is the relative newcomer, full of wonder at the society around him. Our instinct, even when we were watching the story as children ourselves, has invariably been, has invariably been to see the Doctor not as the champion who would protect us from the monsters, but as the vulnerable figure who we worried would be hurt by the monsters. The best Doctors have always had an element of vulnerability, from the clowning second to the traumatised ninth. This is why it was a mistake to try to turn the Tenth Doctor into, into a god, regardless of how one tries to justify it as paving the way for hubris. I'm sure we all remember Tom Baker's anecdotes about children sidling up to him and whispering advice as to how the Doctor could escape from the Daleks. Not defeat the Daleks, but escape from them. The Doctor as the child figure can be seen in the way that the instinct of children is to protect him and worry about him, and there's never been any need for child actors in the show to provide children with an entry point because it's the Doctor who provides that entry point. The Doctor never used to judge his friends. He didn't expect you to be strong or clever or good with guns or a champion shagger to qualify as his friends. You just had to be a good egg. This is where I feel the modern show occasionally goes astray, in insisting that companions be super special, and in turning half the companions' relationships into unrequited romances. The latter makes the Doctor at the same time more normal, but less accessible. Anyway, keep up the good work, Doc Whom, deceased. Wow. A.K.A. all the other things deceased that he always brings up. <laughs> Did he go up? Uh, well... <clears throat> That's a great, great email. That's a great email. Really thought-provoking stuff. Um, yeah. I think you should submit that as an article to Cygnus Alpha magazine. It's very good. Um, I'll, say, not... I'll say two things. Number one, the girl in the interview in 2005 who was asked was him. And second... <laughs> <laughs> the minute... I was actually listening to this podcast in Tesco's yesterday, and the minute you said, uh, name a children's book where the uh, protagonists are children, I just thought, Wind in the Willows. My oh. wife said that when we were listening to it. <clears throat> it doesn't count if the protagonists are animals. <laughs> <laughs> the Hobbit? Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? That's what children in it. Yeah, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Lee. What on earth are you talking about? Don't know. Carry on. I'm in a I'm in a car for Christ's sake. It's dark. I'm I get him on. Give him a break. It's not like he works. <clears throat> I'm not saying. Of course, I wasn't saying. Of course, that there are no children's stories where the main protagonists aren't children. I was just saying that it is, in general, the case. I guess. Hmm. Anyway, you're right. That was a great email. Um, <clears throat> and we have been talking for. Long enough, I think. I have called the Rev and Al up less than half an hour before the start of this recording, stolen them away from their families, and not included the Doc on their journey. So all I can do is say thanks to both of you for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. Yes, thank you, chaps. Yeah. Mm. You will miss the Rev an apology, though. <laughs> well, you can tell her sorry. I've had to stop listening to the Blue Box podcast in bed because she likes your voice, Joe. Oh, yuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, until next week, then. I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. I was Al. And I was the Rev. And we will speak again soon.
You can hear more of Al and the Rev, along with their partner in crime, Doc Whom, at diddlydumbpodcast.wordpress.com.